Hello, and welcome to the Aquarius Podcast, your source for interviews with people from all across the tropical fish keeping hobby. I'm your host, Randy Reed. Please subscribe and check out all previous episodes on Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, or AquarisPodcast.com. You can also check out additional content by following the Aquarius Podcast Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts. If you like what you hear, please rate and leave a review for the show. Enjoy the interview. Today's date is Monday, August 6th, 2018. My guest today is Jim Cumming. Jim is a cichlid fanatic and has been a longtime member of the Aquarium Society of Winnipeg and has served as the club's president for eight years. Jim has made countless presentations at fish clubs and conventions and served as a forum moderator for several online fish forums. I'm thrilled to have Jim on the show today. So Jim, welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. Thank you, Randy. It's really my pleasure. Always nice to talk fish with fish people. Yeah, definitely. And I know people love hearing just, uh, you know, a, a couple people nerding out on a, on a fish topic. So I'm glad to have you on and um, hopefully, you know, I'm sure it will. A lot of your wisdom and, and just experience in the hobby that you'll be able to share with us. Um, and especially as we eventually dive into the cichlids of Madagascar. Um, so to start it off, Jim, what is your origin story? How did you get started in this fish keeping hobby? Well, uh, let me put it this way. I've been keeping fish on and off, mostly on, for 65 years. Uh, when I was eight years old, I um, caught wind of the fact that somebody down the street was selling uh, platies. And um, so I got my one-gallon pickle jar with some Hearts Mountain bird gravel and a sprig of kabamba, and uh, then went off to get my one fish, which happened to be a gravid female red wag platy. Um, that night, she had some young, and from that point on, I was hooked. Uh, I was eight years old at the time, and I've never looked back. <laughs> oh, that is that is fantastic! What did your parents think? Did you did you sneak this into the house, or was it uh, approved no, by no, them? They, they, well, I always had a uh, a leaning toward living things, even though uh, my university training and so on all dealt with physical sciences. Uh, I bio- biologically speaking, I was I was very much uh, into it from a young age. So frogs and tadpoles and any other kind of reptile or amphibian would make its presence felt in my household. So um, the fish were no surprise to my parents, and they encouraged it, actually. And just for context, uh, was that also in Winnipeg? Yes, it was. I, uh, I was born in Winnipeg and raised in Winnipeg, and I, I've been here all my life, yes. Oh, excellent. And so I, I guess if you could kind of shed some, some light and some detail. So you started with the one gallon with the platy uh, that was gravid. Did you know it was gravid at the time? Uh, well, no, not really. But when I saw two little ones up in the, the Kabamba sprig, uh, like little miniatures of the parents, I, uh, I, I quickly learned that this is what it's all about. Uh, the idea of fish breeding and uh, the fascination associated with that. And I, I've never looked back. Um, I got a five-gallon aquarium shortly thereafter uh, with a bunch of cuppies. And uh, I remember I couldn't afford a heater, so I put it over the hot air vent uh, from our furnace uh, to keep it warm. And uh, one morning, just as I was going to school, I noticed a bunch of young ones in the tank. And again, it just, you know, it had an impact on me. So I, uh, I guess I have never looked back in that regard. Uh, my first cichlids, uh, I picked a pair of one-inch long uh, Mizanota, which at the time were just simply called Cichlosoma festivums, uh, from a basement shop. Uh, it turned out that these one-inch fish ended up in, to be a beautiful pair. I had them for about five or six years, enjoyed them entirely, and I, I think that, that planted the seed for the cichlids, that's for sure. And at what, um, a- what age were you when you got these cichlids? Uh, I think I was about 12 when I got the, uh, the Mizanota. And, and then my dad, I guess he sensed that I was quite interested in this, so he helped me build a fish room, so to speak. So by the time I was 15 or 16, I actually had a bit of a fish room down the basement, and, uh, and my dad got into it, too. He, uh, we'd go out Saturday mornings, and uh, we'd look over the different shops and what was in there, and uh, it was great to have my dad's support on that. And he, he was with that for a good number of years until I uh, eventually left home. 
that's so cool that you kind of got your dad into the hobby as opposed to your dad well, getting you yeah, into the hobby. Yeah, it, it, it worked that way. It worked in reverse. But, uh, yeah, it was a, a great uh, inspiration. Uh, you know, the, the father-son bonding thing, we, we certainly uh, bonded a lot over over fish and uh, also records. He was a major record collector, uh, country and western mainly. I was more rock and roll in my teens, and uh, we used to go out on Saturday mornings and uh, look at uh, places that emptied jukeboxes out, and we go through the jukebox records and bring them home. And yeah, so we had a couple of neat things going on between son and father. Mm-hmm. That's very admirable, and I really hope that with my son, who's you know twenty-ish, twenty-one months right now, I, I really hope that he and I can have that kind of relationship as he gets older. Uh, maybe there's a hobby yeah. or two he can get me involved in. Uh, I, I do want to, <laughs> I do want to take a step back and say that's just one more tally of somebody getting their start in the hobby or somebody really falling in love when a live bear gives birth. So mm-hmm. it, it's almost mm-hmm. like I don't know. Uh, three quarters of the people that I've interviewed for this podcast have all pointed to some early, early event in their life where it's it's like a live bear, whether it's a guppy, a molly, or a platy, giving birth, and that just instantly hooking them at a very, very young age. Yes, it's um, it's a, like a, a little miracle happening, uh, you know, all at once. And um, I guess, you know, young young people, kids, aren't necessarily expecting to see something like that. But when I saw it, uh, a whole bunch of different ideas went through my head. Like, what is going on here? Wow, is that really happening? <laughs> you know, it, it, yeah, it, it has impact. There's no doubt. So, Jim, I'm very curious about the shops in Winnipeg um, at the time of your youth. So, you, you mentioned a, a basement shop where you got your cichlids. Um, if you wouldn't mind kind of, you know, maybe just expounding on what the shops were like when you were a kid and maybe now how they have changed into, you know, more of your local shops or I guess just what you've seen change um, in, in the retail locations. Well, back in the earliest of days, um, there were probably three or four shops only. Uh I can't say that uh, I visited them all. Um, There was one that we used to visit called the Reliable Bird Company, and they always had fish in there and a variety of other things. Uh, They seem to be the main one in town. This is back in the uh, mid-50s. But the basement shops were simply young people who had an interest in the hobby, and they would breed a fish, and they'd advertise it in the paper, and, uh, you know, you'd simply phone them and say, I'd like to see what you've got, and you'd go over and, you know, pick a couple of fish up. Um, so when I picked up the Mizunoda, for example, uh, the young fellow, he was probably no more than 17 or 18 himself, and he had angelfish in a tank with a piece of newspaper over the front and a small hole cut out. Uh, there were some angelfish parents uh, tending eggs, and then he had this tank of uh, Mizunoda, and, uh, you know, it just, again, magical. I remember his tank of tiger barbs, a huge tank of tiger barbs. It was probably a 20-gallon tank, but to a little guy, it was huge. And and I remember that, that vision of, of all of these striped fish with orange fins swimming in schools, and I thought, this is fantastic. You know, and uh, again, everything has impact when you're young, for sure. That is so cool. Uh, so when you're opening up, when you're opening up your newspaper and you're looking at the classified section, um, was it a fairly regular occurrence that you would see somebody's ad like, "Hey, I've got these cichlids, or I've got angelfish for sale." You know, here's my phone uh, number, or yeah. was it hit or miss? Yeah. yeah, there was a little section called livestock and pets, and invariably you'd find, you know, on a given day, maybe Saturday, more busy, uh, two or three ads from just ordinary individuals that had fish in there, you know, selling fish, simply that. It's it's much like the uh, online stuff right now, like Kijiji we have here, and uh, you can go to the pets and accessories and homing fish and that type of thing. Similar, very similar to that. Um, But in terms of major shops, uh, there were only a couple that I visited. Uh, I had limited mobility when I was young. It was strictly up to my dad where we went, and uh, we had a couple of favorites. the mum and pop shops, uh, they did quite well in the 70s and 80s. And then when the bigger chains came along, like Petland and so on, many of them, uh, the smaller places uh, folded. But in town right now, we have three or four uh, fairly fairly good-sized, uh, um, I guess, quite successful um, shops on the go. And uh, we have a, a, a wholesaler in town as well. I don't know if you've heard of him, but his name is Spencer Jack, and he runs a place called Aficionados, and he uh, supplies fish all across Canada. And it, uh, it's very fortunate for me to have him in this town because uh, due to his, uh, his importing fish, I get uh, access to quite a few things that I normally wouldn't get in a normal pet store. So 
that's really helped expand my hobby too. Uh, but um, I would say that at this stage in the game for me, um, I'm far enough into it that I just really can't get anything of particular use or um, or supply um, for my hobby. Um, I've got to order things in, and I usually order most of my things from the States. And I, I there's a parcel service. I'm only 60 miles north of the American border, so uh, I usually just ship them to a parcel service at the border and then pick them up down there. Um, that helps me uh, offset some rather major costs. Um, there are bargains to be had if you look in, <laughs> in up in the right places, I guess. Oh, gotcha. So I guess now let, let's kind of understand, how did you go from, all right, so you, you know, you're, you're, you've got your fish room, you're in your teens, to, you know, Jim Cumming now, who is, you know, a member of CARES, you've been a, a fish club president. Um, I guess, what did that evolution for you, um, how did that go, and how did you become kind of this prominent, you know, figure in the hobby where you've spoken at countless fish clubs, probably countless conventions as well? Well, that's a good, a very good question. I, I wish there was an easy uh, path for me to describe. Um, I was in fish for 20, 30 years before any sort of external notoriety of me <laughs> occurred, I suppose you could say. Uh, I would go to the ACA conventions in the early 80s, um, a number of them, uh, meet people, uh, get my name out there a little bit, but, you know, I was that Canadian that nobody knew much about. Um, I would, in the early um, 2000s, um, I was on several forums and I would put my postings out there. I, I wanted to share my fish with anybody who would care to, to look at them, not, not to boost my ego, but to simply say, hey, look, this is what I've got. It's got some really interesting things going on here. Uh, what do you think? Uh, that was my main mandate. Um, and I guess when the social media became more prominent, and I, I realized that most of the forums were very, very slow to uh, to develop. Um, when you put something on, uh, you might get a few responses, but nobody was really looking that much. And uh, I, when I went, I finally made a commitment to Facebook, and I think that's what turned things around. Um, when you put things on Facebook, you get immediate recognition of, of things out there. Uh, Sure, in a few days they're gone into obscurity, but in the meantime, um, people are getting a sense of this guy up in Canada who's breeding a lot of fish and uh, showing videos and pictures and seems to know what he's talking about, <laughs> which is the great myth perhaps, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but it, it turns out that uh, just through exposure, uh, people then get curious about you and um, they friend you. Uh, I have a YouTube channel that also is a major uh, help in, in, in getting me out there. Uh, I presently have over 650 videos on my YouTube channel right now, and they're all of my fish. I, I'm extremely interested in the breeding, the social aspects of fish keeping, interactions between uh, within a given species and uh, external to that species to species. Um, so um, my YouTube channel helps too, and uh, if anybody ever wants to find out anything, I can always draw their attention to uh, perhaps a YouTube video or two that I have there for them. Um, so good, good news travels. <laughs> I think it's good news. Um, I've always been wanting to uh, share my fish with people, and I guess that the Madagascar cichlids gave me that first major opportunity to do that because they were so different and people knew so little about them that uh, the curiosity factor kicked in, I think. Yeah, I should have and, actually... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I, I, as I was framing that initial question to you, Jim, I, I realized that that was going to kind of... It was going to put you in an awkward spot, and I guess I could have just uh, summarized and said, all right, Jim, tell me about when you became awesome and popular. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, well, you use those words. Uh, I, I guess, like I say, I have a certain amount of notoriety <laughs> out there. And uh, I like to keep perpetuating that myth, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not an expert by any means. Uh, I'm on the learning curve like everybody else in fish keeping. Uh, you'd think that after being in the hobby for over 60 years that there wouldn't be much more to know, uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever way you look at it, that's not true. Um, there's always lots of room to learn. And I have my setbacks now with um, new, new things going on in my fish room. And the problem solving is stimulating. It really is. It's um, 
you know, you begin to think, well, what's going to happen in my hobby that would kind of recharge my batteries or, or get me fired up about something again? Well, Madagascar cichlids have done that. And um, I, I, I know what dire straits they're in in nature, and I know Madagascar as a country is, is, is reeling from issues of difficulty. Um, and, you know, when you keep fish and you limit it to, to just the fish, you're kind of doing yourself uh, a disservice because you really have to dig into where they are and what the conditions are like, where they are living naturally. And, and this is what I've tended to become more and more attuned to, the, uh, the Madagascar as a country and what's making all of these uh, terrible ecological disasters take place. So um, when I do my presentation on Madagascar cichlids, it's, um, it's, it's almost like the good, the bad, and the ugly uh, type of thing, where, you know, it's a magnificent wonderland of ecological uniqueness, uh, but it's being degraded so greatly by the human component, and the offshoot of that is um, extinction and uh, endangerment for every living thing on that island. Uh, so you, you do get quite emotionally connected to it all. It's it's not just, oh, I keep these fish and this is, you know, how you deal with them. Um, it's more than that. It's, it's, it's really an emotional connection to the whole, the whole of Madagascar and uh, its issues now. Yeah, and so I think when we, you know, when fish keepers, even if you're not a cichlid person, when you think of uh, Africa, you know, you, you immediately go to um, the Rift Lakes, um, you'll think of, of those cichlids there. Um, if you think Madagascar, even as a fish keeper, maybe your mind just kind of wanders to the silly cartoons of lemurs and, you know, mm -hmm. the, all, all of that kind of um, pop culture that is around the island of Madagascar. Uh, but, you know, I don't, I don't think, unless you're really ingrained in the cichlid hobby, you don't really know much about the Madagascar cichlids or you don't hear much about it. At least, you know, that's from my personal experience. So I, I nope. guess to, to kind of, you know, piggyback off of the presentation that you already do, I mean, I guess kind of help me, help me understand or help us understand rather um, what in particular is going on in Madagascar, you know, the species that are there, um, kind of the plight facing them, maybe a little species overview of what we're actually finding that's endemic to the island. And I'll just let you kind of run with it, Jim. Okay, well, um, Madagascar uh, was once attached to uh, East Africa. And in fact, um, probably no more than 500 miles or so from the Rift Lakes, maybe 500 to 1,000 miles from the Rift Lakes. Uh, through continental drift, Madagascar broke free of um, mainland Africa and stayed connected with India for some length of time, where there was some crossover of, of speciation between Madagascar and India. Um, but Madagascar basically became isolated uh, about 60 million years ago. And everything that is developed on that island has been in complete isolation. Uh, the evolution that normally occurs with diversity, uh, change in physical setting, uh, just didn't occur there. Uh, there's a belief that a lot of the animal forms that live there are basically unchanged and have been unchanged for millions of years. Um, we talk about Lake Malawi, the Rift Lakes, um, the fact that in that one lake there can be hundreds of species simply because a species, um, through separation from others, uh, tends to diverge. And each bay has its own unique species. If they move out into deep water, they get predated on by the deep water haps. And um, so therefore they stay put and they develop their own unique speciation. Well, Madagascar is kind of the reverse of that. Instead of having one body of water with bays that are isolated, it's an island that has countless river systems that never intersect. So when the fish do uh, have a presence in a particular river system or a lake, uh, there is no possibility for that fish to move to another river or lake. So therefore, it develops along its own lines and has been for hundreds of years, thousands of years, uh, millions of years, in fact. So um, uh, there's no reason to change. If the conditions are basically um, unchanging, then the fish themselves have no reason to evolve to a new setting of, of um, physical um, properties. And uh, the fish tend to stay pretty much the same. Uh, but they do diverge through natural evolution, and uh, therefore you get um, 
a lot of different populations of similar looking fish, but they are believed to be different species. That's the case right now. Um, yes, fish don't simply go from one place to another because of overland flooding or, uh, or some such uh, thing like that. They tend to stay put. Uh, so do you so, do you tend to see? And I'm sorry for for cutting you off. Um, do, do you tend to see then the the cichlids of Madagascar? Um, are they fairly and I and I hate to use this word, but are they fairly vanilla in terms of their behavior? Whereas in the uh, the Great Rift Lakes, you know, you see uh, because of competition um, and just because of you know the varying food sources, how they have diversified um, for survival. Do you see that same kind of thing happening in the Madagascar cichlids, or are they more like I said? Uh, more vanilla in terms of their behavior? Uh, well, in, in their natural setting, most of the uh, Madagascan cichlids don't have any natural predators. And therefore, they don't have to develop uh, defensive mechanisms or particular strategies to look after their young or raise their young. There's simply no threats there. Now, uh, in, in recent years, um, with the introduction of invasives, uh, tilapia, snakeheads, uh, gambusia, um, the, the situation's changed. The fish haven't been able to adapt to protect their young or eggs from these predators, and so basically they uh, are, are helpless uh, regarding uh, possible predation on their, on their fry and so on. So um, they're, they're a very different sort of fish. In an aquarium, they have a certain behavior defensively against uh, predation in the tank, but it almost seems as if they're not programmed to carry that through consistently. They, they um, are very, well, how shall I say, easily stressed. Uh, they're very easily distracted. Um, if you approach a tank with a pair uh, that have eggs um, and you come to the aquarium, they'll think uh, that they're going to be fed and they simply leave their eggs. They, they don't uh, have a sense of of needing to stick by them. Um, if other fish are in the tank, they can move in and predate on those eggs or young. Um, so it is a bit different. Uh, they're, they're very good parents when they're allowed to be. And in this case, um, in a public aquarium, public meaning just in your home where there's movement activity outside the tank, uh, they can be very easily distracted. So um, there are different strategies you can use to uh, kind of help them along in that regard. But, but in nature, that's the problem now. The, um, the main uh, issue, I guess, with, with um, and I'm talking mainly about the paratroplus here, uh, the paratilapia and the tychochromus are much more like Central American cichlids. They can successfully raise their young. Uh, they do have defensive mechanisms that are very similar to the uh, New World cichlids, but it's the paratroplus that don't. And uh, so they are very prone to um, eating their eggs, uh, simply not getting them to the pre-swimming stage. Uh, it, it's quite a challenge to get them there. Uh, in, in nature, then, uh, it's the presence of, of these invasives and the fact that they, uh, they're being overfished and uh, there is pollution in their uh, water sources that are bringing them to the, to the edge of extinction. So yes, they're they're quite different uh, from the usual cichlid, if there is such a thing as the usual cichlid. Wow. So I guess thinking now um, to your efforts with these fish, um, how many Madagascar cichlids do you have? Um, and if it's not, you know, an overly large number, I mean, I guess kind of uh, help us understand which of those species and which of those genuses do you currently have in your fish room? Yeah, there, there are only a certain number that are available in the hobby. Uh, Exports from Madagascar just don't take place unless it's maybe for scientific reasons. Maybe uh, a zoo or a scientific facility might be able to get them out. But for the most part, um, the number of species that exist are the same now as were available in the mid-90s. Uh, there were two uh, gentlemen that were from Europe that were instrumental in bringing these fish into the hobby at all. Uh, that's uh, Jean-Claude Nourassat, who was... Um, a doctor in France, and uh, a gentleman named Patrick Deram, who was a Swiss national. And they made countless expeditions in the early and mid-90s into Madagascar and brought out fish uh, to southern Europe. And from there, they were distributed throughout Europe and some actually to North America. Uh, Leif de Mason, 
who uh, owns Old World Exotic Fish in Homestead, Florida, uh, made a commitment to turn part of his uh, fish farming operation over to Madagascar cichlids. So in terms of um, North American distribution, it's through Leif's efforts and his uh, his uh, facility uh, that has made some of these available to the hobbyists over here. Uh, the number of species I have, um, well, uh, I don't have them all all the time, uh, but I had uh, three different uh, populations of Paratalapia polini. There was one called East Coast Pony, another called Marilambo, and then the one that was thought to be polini, but perhaps is not, is the species Andapa, the large spot polini. Um, there is a fish being distributed called Leekeri, but unfortunately that's a, um, not a reality. Uh, apparently, bleaker eye did exist at one time in Madagascar, but uh, before it was exported, it went extinct. Uh, the term bleaker eye was uh, synonymous with the large spot form, and the pollen eye was considered to be the small spot form. But now it's known that different populations have different spot sizes, and uh, there is no such thing as a small spot, large spot. They're simply all pollen eye but with uh, a variety of different uh, spot sizes and colorations based upon population and location. Uh, so th three of the uh, paratalapia, the tychochromines, uh, relatively few of those available. One is called the Grandadiri uh, East Coast Gold. Another is the Oligacanthus, which comes, up, uh, comes from the northern part of Madagascar. Uh, some of them uh, actually are on islands, volcanic islands called Nosy Bay. Uh, the oligocanthus uh, has different populations as well, different appearances. Some have redder fins, some not. Some have a blacker body, some not. Uh, and then there's one that has been introduced relatively recently, probably about uh, six or seven years ago. It made its appearance. It was called uh, Tychochromus species terrancy. And in the last year or two, it was given finally species designation. It's now called Tychochromus mainty. And it looks very much like Grandadiri. Um, the Toronto Zoo have some in quarantine. They have Tychochromus um, insulitis, which was the one that was thought to have become extinct. It was extinct in the hobby for sure, but they have a breeding program going. And they also have Tychochromus loiselli there, uh, but they're not in the hobby. They haven't been distributed here yet. Uh, some have been sent to a, a, um, a zoo in uh, the Netherlands. Uh, I was talking to a fellow named Peter Peterson there, who's the curator, and he has some young insolitus right now, and uh, hopefully he will be able to raise those and distribute them. Um, the paratroplus are definitely the ones that capture people's attention. If you want to think of an iconic Madagascan cichlid, you would think of these fish that look very much like saltwater tangs. They have a uh, beautiful um, compressed body, small mouths, uh, fork tails, uh, they, 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 they do look like the epitome of a, of a saltwater tang, but yet a, strictly a freshwater fish. Now I have um, uh, Paratroplus menorambo, maculatus, dambabi, nurisadi, kinerai. Uh, these are the only ones that are generally available in the hobby right now. Oh, and pardon me, let's see, there's another one I think I have. Uh, I should know this. <laughs> uh, I, I think I have the five of them right now, and I have young from all from four of the five at this present time. I, I've I've bred them several times. Uh, last year I had Neurosadi available, and I I shipped some to Poland in in uh, in Europe, and it was uh, uh, an interesting thing because they had not had any opportunity to get uh, Paratroplus uh, Neurosadi over there. Uh, but yet I had them here, so they went to, to Poland then. Um, so I have then the five Paratroplus, uh, three of the Tychochromus, and uh, three of the um, Paratalapia. And, and that's, about, that's about where it ends. Do we have any estimate of what percent of the, the cichlids in Madagascar have already gone extinct, or maybe what, what scientists feel was the number of, of different cichlid, uh, cichlid genuses, uh, genus and species uh, that were endemic at one time, um, and how many have gone extinct, and how many are endangered, just kind of rough numbers? Yes, this, is, um, this has been uh, determined through the... Uh, I'm just trying to find something here for you. Um, 
I can give you that information if you have a moment. Yeah, no, no worries. Okay. okay. This uh, is a, this is a free show for the listeners, so they don't they don't get to complain. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I know I don't have all this information available all the time, um, but I'm getting there. <laughs> okay. Um, the IUCN, the International Union for Concerned Nations, Red List Assessment of Madagascar's freshwater fishes. Uh, right now, there's uh, 28% of them are data deficient, meaning that they don't know anything about them, really. Uh, they can't even make a comment on, on how they're doing. Uh, they don't know much about their distribution and numbers because Madagascar is so difficult to get around. There's no real road system, and uh, it takes uh, incredible time, effort, and money to get anywhere on that island. Uh, so 28% are data deficient. Uh, 12% have been considered to be of least concern, meaning that they're there in sufficient numbers and, uh, and a large enough different locations that they're okay. Um, 2% are considered non-threatened only because they're in such remote areas that uh, there's no human uh, threat to them. Uh, vulnerable, 29%. Uh, they're considered to be fish that if no steps are taken toward uh, trying to improve their lot, uh, 29, almost a, a third of the fish there are in the vulnerable state. 13% uh, are considered endangered, meaning that within 10 years, if nothing is done, they'll probably be on the verge of extinction. 12% uh, are critically endangered. Uh, if, if nothing is done much, again, to uh, further their cause, within five years, some of those could be extinct. 1% um, is considered extinct in the wild. Um, Actually, the Menorambo was considered to be extinct in 1996, and uh, then they found a small relic population in a nearby lake, but it took them 10 years to find that, and the lake was only like 10 miles away. Uh, so it just tells, shows you how difficult it is to get around in that country and to assess what's going on. 3% um, of the fish, since they've been keeping records, have been considered to have gone extinct. Um, so that's the way it is then. 28% they don't know anything about, 12% are okay, 2% uh, uh, are near-threatened, 29% vulnerable, 13% endangered, 12% critically endangered, uh, with a small percentage like basically extinct or, or certainly thought to be extinct. So that's the story on that. Yeah, so those aren't very uh, awesome numbers, I guess. Like they're not, they're <laughs> not encouraging it, numbers. In fact, if it were only the fish, you know, that would be one thing. But there isn't a creature on that island that isn't threatened this way. Uh, in fact, they say that if, unless there's a, an attempt to curb uh, hunting for lemur, uh, because they hunt them as bushmeat there. I mean, uh, the people need protein to eat, and they'll they'll hunt a lemur. Uh, the the mirror would not last more than 10 more years on that island if, uh, unless special measures are taken to protect them. Uh, so it, 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 it's, it's sad all the way along. There, there's countless species that are found nowhere else on Earth, and they are all on the verge of uh, extinction. Yeah. For the fish, are there any targeted conservation efforts? I mean, outside of, you know, uh, the CARES organization promoting um, the, the keeping and breeding of these fish in, in captivity, but is there anything actually like boots on the ground happening in Madagascar to help out? Is there anything like a Project Piaba or, you know, any anything like that to, um, to help the situation? Uh, yes, there are. Um, actually, about um, eight or nine years ago, uh, a Madagascan national uh, named Guy Tampiok was commissioned to um, uh, try to save certain species and put them back into the environment. Um, he has an area near Andapa where he has ponds dug. I guess the water table is high enough that the ponds are, are filled naturally. And he is breeding a lot of the fish that are on the verge of extinction or highly endangered and uh, breeding them in some numbers. Now, he's being funded by the Toronto Zoo um, and special grants to, to keep this going. He's also breeding fish um, as a source of uh, food for, for the people. Um, Paratalapia, for example, are considered to be a, a desirable food fish there, and uh, he has ponds devoted to that as well. So um, there is this active uh, attempt to try to... Um, to try to get um, something going right on the ground there in terms of this breeding program. 
Now, there's um, also another <coughs> program that has been going on since 1971 in a uh, city called Ramsar in Iran. Um, an international conference was held to try to designate areas of ecological importance. And what they do is they, they choose areas that need protection and they try to get the government on board with that protection. Um, actually, right now, uh, Madagascar has about 30 of these de designated Ramsar sites and uh, they are being protected and there's no, uh, no fishing allowed in them as far as they can regulate it and uh, no exporting, no, no removal of fish or any other uh, creatures from those, those areas. Now, most of them are, are along the marine coast, so uh, a lot of them are the saltwater fish areas, uh, protected reef areas and so on. But there is a movement afoot toward more of the freshwater sites being included in these Ramsar sites. So there are attempts, um, but it's, I think, like a drop in the bucket. When you have a population that is, is desperate, for food, shelter, um, the uh, extreme amount of of, um, of erosion that occurs in that country is strictly due to the fact that the people strip it bare of any wood, uh, simply to burn, to, to create charcoal for burning fires, um, and and the erosion results in, in in turbidity of the waters to such an extent that uh, the fish can't survive in there. So. Uh, unless the needs of the people are better looked after, I don't know if these measures of designating sites or trying to put fish back into into these uh, areas that are at risk is going to do much if nothing is going to change in the environment. Yeah, because so like, it's, it's, like you're saying, it's, well, it's not a matter of just overfishing and leaving the natural habitat alone. It's overfishing, it's deforestation, it's erosion. Um, so even if we're able to captive breed, the prospects of reintroduction into those original collection points or, you know, origination points is, is looking slim to none, yeah? Exactly, that's the problem. It's, a, it, it's, a, it's one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, it's, if, if you talk about third world countries, it's below third world. And it's it's a de such a desperate situation there. Um, the government is not able to uh, make things better. They 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 don't have the uh, the control of of the country that way. Um, it, it, no, it, it, I've heard that people that visit there um, see nothing but abject poverty, um, out of control um, theft. Uh, if things aren't literally nailed down, they'll be stolen just because the people need those things. Uh, it, it, it's a sad situation. And it, it shows itself in all of the ecology of the, of the country. Yeah, yeah, that is, that is very, very unfortunate. And so I, I guess to kind of bring it back to, um, you know, if somebody, whether they're CARES-inspired or just inspired from this conversation, um, you know, if they, ha if they could dedicate maybe uh, a tank or two to one or two species um, that are readily available in the hobby, uh, which would you point them to from more of a conservation standpoint of, all right, if you're going to keep one of these Madagascars, I would probably point you to, you know, this one or that one because there's not as many people keeping this particular species in captivity. <laughs> well, um <clears throat> I don't know if if they're for everybody. That that's the thing. Um, most of them do get quite large. Uh, most of the paratroplus get to be a good ten to twelve inches long, uh, total length. Uh, there are a couple of smaller species, five six inches, but they. One of them, the neurosati, can be quite aggressive, and unless you have it in a, a large enough tank with uh, large enough numbers, uh, they can be quite hard on one another. Um, I, I would say that the best starting. Uh, Madagascar cichlid would be something in the Paratalathia or Tychochromis area because they're more like Central American cichlids in many respects and uh, people would find less difficulty in, in keeping them and, and, and maybe, you know, having to transition to uh, the Paratroplus might be a, a bit extreme. However, having said that, if a person has a good-sized tank, 120, 150, 180 gallon, uh, keeping uh, a colony of, say, 6 to 10 of a given species in there is a magnificent sight. Uh, you know, unless people are actually, you know, only intent on breeding those fish, there is nothing more spectacular than seeing a group of these fish together in a tank like that, a big tank. And uh, they're, they're a magnificent trophy fish. They really are. 
uh, aggression, not not really to worry about if they're there in a in a school. Put two fish in the tank of any type, and they're going to be at one another. But you put six to eight to ten in there, and you've got this beautiful, you know, copacetic situation where there isn't a split fin or a scale missing. Uh, the fish are simply in unison. Uh, it's a beautiful sight. Um, I would say that the the one that would be most available would be the Paratroplus menorambo, the pinstripe damba. That would be the the one that I would say uh, most people would say, oh yeah, I've seen that fish or I've seen pictures of that fish. Um, although my my interest doesn't hone in on any particular fish, I, I, I'm still looking to try to increase my number of species and I'm just hopeful that in the next few months I can come by another species that I don't have and haven't had, had all sorts of difficulty trying to get over the years and this fall, uh, hopefully, I'll be able to get some. Uh, you just did a podcast with Jose Gonzalez in, uh, from San Antonio. And he is, uh, I, I don't want to call him my mentor, but he is the person that I've turned to in many respects to get some of my fish from. And we bounce ideas off of one another. And he has a fish called Paratroplus damii right now that he has just bred a few times now. And I'm hopeful I can get some young from him. Uh, if this podcast were to last two more hours, I would tell you the whole story of my attempts to get Damii from Europe, uh, which I, I can't, uh, I can't go through it again. I'll start crying. I'm sure. <laughs> oh no! Well, the, you know <laughs> what? This is uh, it was a. There's always a, it was, yeah, it was a very tough story. There's so, always um, uh, future episodes, Jim. We could have you back on and, and share. You know the oh, we could just call yeah. it the, you know the search for a certain species and just kind of let you let you run at it again. Well, that's right. I'm uh, I'm speaking at this year's uh, 2019 ACA convention, and, and the theme of that whole convention is the Holy Grail fish. And uh, I have a video on there uh, which talks about my attempts to get the DMEI and the fact that at the time the video was made, I still hadn't had it, and uh, I found out that I will not be able to get it from Europe. So anyway, I've got uh, hope that uh, later in the fall, uh, perhaps Jose will have some young available, and I'll be okay on that. Well, that's excellent, Jim. I mean, thank you very much for all of that, you know, insight and uh, and content and information and, and just a, you know, a, a very um, in-depth understanding of what's happening in Madagascar um, and, you know, some, some species deep dives um, on these Madagascar cichlids. And I guess, you know, we kind of had a little segue there. I'm very curious to know, you know, what does the future look like for Jim Cumming? Maybe some speaking um, events that you have scheduled. I know you just mentioned ACA 2019. If there's anything else on the docket, I mean, feel free to let us know. Um, you know, <coughs> listeners are all around the country, people in Canada, um, a couple different, you know, countries are, are pretty prominent prominent listeners of this podcast so if anybody's like man this, this canadian guy sounds super awesome he's he's well, very, you, he's I, very I, kind I've, <laughs> I've had a wonderful time uh spreading the word on these fish and i always used to say um it's all about the fish right i mean this is what i was all about i had to talk about the fish my fish or anybody who'd care to listen and now I've modified that to it's all about the fish and fish people because I've met so many darn nice people out there in my travels that it, it, it's, it's blown me away. I mean, uh, it's not that I didn't know they weren't there in the first place, but uh, the, the, everybody is so receptive to wanting to hear about these things, and, uh, you know, the receptions have been great. Uh, this past year, I have had 13 or 14 different speaking engagements uh, last fall, I was in Sacramento. You mentioned that you were originally from Sacramento or in that area. And uh, so I, I was fortunate to give a, a double talk, one to the San Francisco Club in Sacramento. I stayed with Rich Byerly, um, one of the, the club president in Sacramento right now. Um, but as of this year, I've been to Washington, D.C., um, to Detroit and Grand Rapids, uh, the NEC convention in uh, Connecticut, uh, I've been to Edmonton twice. Uh, I went to Berlin, Germany, and Dresden, Germany, um, in April. Uh, I was in Cincinnati at the end of June. Uh, I've got coming up uh, Rogers, Arkansas, uh, the um, Columbus area fish enthusiasts, Minnesota Aquarium Society. And in November, I'm in Brisbane, Australia. And next year, I'm in. Uh, I've got a couple of commitments. One is York, Pennsylvania and uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm also going to Stockholm, Sweden uh, in uh, March as well. 
and then I'm at the ACA convention in uh, in Connecticut. Uh, but things are starting to happen. I guess clubs are getting their uh, speaking programs together for the coming year. And uh, I never say no. I really don't. <laughs> I, uh, you know, if anybody asks me, unless it's a conflict of dates, uh, I'm always willing to uh, to go out and talk to the people about them. And and I don't just have Madagascan um, presentations. I've actually got uh, about six or seven different presentations that I do now. Um, some are in more complete stages of others. Uh, I've got one on the South American cichlids, which is a big thing in my hobby. Probably half of what I have in my fish room is South American. So I call that South American cichlids the magnificence. Um, I have I have the Indian cichlids. There are three of them. I have So my presentation is the cichlids of India and Indian biotopes. And then the one, one of the ones that I'm giving at the ACA convention is the combined Madagascan and Indian cichlids, since they have a connection. Uh, through uh, tectonic plate movement and uh, continental drift. Um, I've also got a pond, which I've been up and running for 12 years, but I don't put anything in it but tropical fish. Right now I've got Central American and South American cichlids in my yard pond, and I have a presentation on uh, strategies for maintaining (laughs) tropical fish in northern ponds. I am north of the 49th parallel. I was just going to say, you're you're almost in like frozen tundra country come wintertime. it's, it's, it's not far off that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, don't remind me, please. <laughs> I, I, I'm continually checking the temperature nightly. Here it is, the middle of August, and I'm already looking at temperatures for the evening. And if it weren't for my immersion heater and other heat retention strategies, I think my fish would be brought in by the end of this month. But they'll be out there until the middle of October. Well, Jim, I'm going to have to book about another 10 hours of your time across various different <laughs> dates to kind of break down and, and just have you go through each of those, uh, you know, things that you had brought up. Um, yeah, so, I mean, if you ever need anybody to help, you know, be your PowerPoint assistant, I'm happy to, to tag along for the Australia trip, um, as well as, oh, I think you said, Switzerland. So <laughs> I'm, I'm fantastic when it comes to actually clicking the mouse button when you say next slide. So that's uh, right. that's one of the top I need, things. I, I need good tech. Help. I really do. <laughs> that's what they taught me in grad school. So that's uh, that's my area of focus. So, so Jim, thank you very much for for coming on. I mean, this is you know super insightful. I hope everybody comes away from this with a little bit more of an appreciation uh, for the cichlids of Madagascar, or just you know a, a foundational knowledge of you know, hey, I didn't know that there were cichlids in Madagascar, and you know they have a little yeah. bit more of an appreciation and understanding of what's going on and. You know, maybe somebody, if they're feeling, you know, up to the challenge, maybe the, they look into one of these um, Madagascar cichlids and, um, and and learn from you. And we'll definitely make sure that we have links to your YouTube channel. Um, I don't think you're doing any of those trendy videos where you're dancing outside of a moving car to some, you know, popular song. Uh, but well, not yet. <laughs> not yet. Maybe that might be coming. Not, <laughs> actually, <yeah. laughs> actually I, I just want to say one thing. Um, I think that the dimension of fish keeping is enhanced so much by not only getting a fish, but then working backwards and try to find out where it came from, of what it's doing in its natural habitat, um, to work it backward to the country. Because if you can connect the fish to the country, a real physical place, uh, it just adds this whole incredible new dimension to fish keeping. And, and not to mention the fact that if you get a fish, you have to learn the scientific name. <laughs> that is a must. <laughs> A few, a few episodes back, I actually I challenged myself and I and I ran through when I was doing kind of my my overview of the tanks that I kept. You know, I challenged myself. I looked at the scientific names, and I've been you know very diligent about making sure that if at least it's something that I keep. To your point, um, I I know the scientific names and I can pronounce them. And then if there are any that I'm interested in that I just can't pronounce it, then I just have to pass on that species. <laughs> as they as they say, there are there are no, there are no more ancient Greeks around to challenge you on pronunciation. So however you pronounce it, it's correct. <laughs> oh yeah, it's it, it is wild. And then not even the pronunciation, but also um, God, I, I, I'm drawing a blank on the website. But the etymology, like actually knowing what the names are, what they mean. So um, you know, to, mm-hmm. to drag this conversation out a little bit longer, like the paratilapia, uh, you know, para meaning on the side of or yeah. next to, and yeah, then exactly. and then tilapia mm-hmm. is, I guess, just a name for an Af- uh, an African native fish. Um, yeah. And That's then great. the 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 Tichromis, the 
the PTYX equals that, that basically means fold. And then chromis yeah. is another way to say fish. So really breaking it yeah. down because a lot, especially a lot of the African cichlids, like there's, it, it's not just like a fun name, like a fun random word that they associated to this fish. A lot of times there's meaning in it, right? Like, you know, a, the, the Greek name means that it is a fish eater or it is an egg eater. Um, and that's yeah. actually kind of built into the genus or the species name. No, it's true. There's a there's a whole um, story about that. For example, um, <clears throat> I keep a Central American cichlid called Wipem Heros Nurisati. Now, what Sven Kullender's tried to do is he tra- he's trying to name the fish either genus or species uh, according to the culture of the people that live in the area where that fish is found. And Wipem, from the uh, dialect Mayan dialect, means face in the mud. So a, a Wipem Heros is literally a fish that buries its face in the mud, <laughs> and uh, that's what it does. It's the um, Central American equivalent of an earth eater, I guess you could say, from South America. So, uh, and, and, or to, um, like, Tawatin Suwaya Makanzatsa, the Inca stonefish, that name is strictly made up of uh, local cultural things, which is really a step in the right direction. Instead of calling something uh, Bill Gates eye or whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, related to the culture uh, of the area where it's found. And I, I'm all in favor of that. No, I, I, I agree with you, Jim. Don't get me wrong, though. I do want a Randy Reed eye fish out there someday, though. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, apparently, I've got one. Um, I, I, um, a student, a former student of mine eventually became a PhD uh, ichthyologist, and he's a uh, curator in uh, one of the aquariums out west, and he was doing uh, research on uh, the ancient bony fishes in Manitoba, and there's one there that he has that he says he's going to describe someday, and it will be, my last name will be it, Coming Eye, so that <laughs> I'm is, waiting for the day. <laughs> that is super awesome, so that's why you have that attitude, you're like, yeah, I've already got one kind of in the bag, so every other oh, yeah, one needs to... <laughs> I'm okay. Nothing That's, alive though. This one's like fifty million years old. So. Hey, I will. I'll take one hundred million years old. It doesn't. It doesn't oh, okay. even. <laughs> good times. Well, you'll, you'll get your fish, dude. Don't worry. <laughs> All right, Jim. Well, thank you so much for okay. your time. I really appreciate it. This has been a fantastic conversation. I hope everybody out there has really enjoyed um, just you know hearing you. I mean, you've obviously got passion. You've got um, so much experience. And, uh, you know, I, I hope there's a, a day soon where I get a chance to, to meet you in person and hear you speak. Um, I do have very, very minor influence in the, uh, in the speaker, um, the upcoming speakers for the Seattle Aquarium Society. So I'll try to, I'll try to see mm-hmm. if I can throw some influence and have you come out to, uh, to the Emerald City and speak to us. Oh, I'd love to come out your way. That'd be great. And it'd be very nice to meet you, too. Oh, absolutely. You'd be welcome here at my house, Jim. That's for certain. <laughs> okay, Randy. Well, thank you very much, then. All right, Jim. You have a wonderful day now. You too. Bye. Thank you again for listening to the Aquarius Podcast. As always, get involved in your local fish club, help grow this wonderful hobby, and have fun with other fish nerds.